You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Senolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. Today's guest is none other than Dr. Frank Lippman. For almost four decades, he's been a pioneer in integrative and functional medicine, a well-known international speaker in the health and wellness industry. You might have seen him on TV lots of times or in popular magazines, and you probably have heard him if you're interested in health and you're online. He's the founder and director of 1111 Wellness Center in New York City. Uh, multiple times New York Times bestselling author, and he made something called Be Well, a lifestyle brand with cleanses and supplements and health coaching. And I wanted to have him on the show today to talk about his fifth book, which is called How to Be Well. And it's a very different book than the other ones he's written. And he learned a few things while writing it that I'm going to ask him to share on the show today. He's also going to talk about his good medicine mandala and why really good health comes from the ordinary things you do every day, something he and I agree on very much. Dr. Littman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on for quite a while, and we finally made our calendars line up, which is, uh, which is a fantastic opportunity. And let's open up by just talking about how you got to be one of those rare people who spent decades doing I'm just going to call it 
crazy pants medicine, for lack of a better word, in that you're doing functional medicine, integrative medicine, the stuff that, in my experience, really works and that I wish I discovered earlier. But you were one of the first people to that game. What made you pay attention when most of the medical profession was saying, hey, have some more antibiotics? Well, I was lucky enough, in a way, to grow up in South Africa. Um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s in South Africa during apartheid. So during apartheid, being a white person, knowing the system was wrong, you, I, was, I was brought up to, to not to trust the system anyway. And then I went into medical school and I became a doctor. And you know, soon after I finished my training, I realized the limitations of my Western medicine. So maybe because of my upbringing and not trusting the system, I didn't trust the medical system either. It was just an extension in a way of the political system in South Africa. So uh, I always questioned the system. And, you know, you know to, to be quite honest, when you train as a doctor, you, you learn crisis care or emergency care as a doctor. You, you learn in the hospitals. So you learn to, you know, how do you treat really sick people? And when you come out of the hospital setting and you're in a, in a practice, uh, people come in and they can't poop and they're tired and they can't sleep. And you're not really trained to, to, to treat those people. And I was also lucky enough to work in a practice straight after my medical school where the people, it was an alternative practice in Johannesburg and people had seen the acupuncturist and they were getting better and they'd seen the homeopath and had gotten better. So all this quackery that I was sort of taught or you know, modalities I was taught were crack, quackery. People were coming in and they were being helped with problems that I couldn't help or I didn't know what to do as a regular doctor. So it was pretty obvious early on that if I really wanted to help my patients, I'd have to explore modalities other than what I got taught as a Western doctor. So you didn't experience the, the crisis of consciousness or, or crisis of identity a lot of doctors go through if you, say, had been maybe trained in the U.S. during that time in, in the 70s and 80s, and then you had said, wait a minute, acupuncture and homeopathy appear to have clinical results, but they can't have clinical results. Therefore, you know, all of the training I've had is no good. You didn't have that, that level of discomfort because you didn't really trust it in the first place. Yeah, not at all. I didn't exactly. I, I never had any, any of that, actually. <laughs> okay. So that, that explains why you were early to the party, because you realized the party might not be entirely accurate, even when you're going through the training. Exactly. And, you know, when I came to the States, I had to do an internal medicine training. I had to do three years in the South Bronx uh, in internal medicine just to get a license in New York. And there happened to be an acupuncture clinic attached to the hospital because they were doing detox. You know, in, in, in the, in the, this was the 80s now. Crack and heroin were, were major epidemics, and actually there were, happened to be an acupuncture clinic in the South Bronx. So when I was so disillusioned with Western medicine, especially American medicine, because it was even worse than South African medicine, because there was no <laughs> aspect of relationship. It yeah. was all about doing bloods and presenting to the professor. There was no, there was no teaching of, of, of a relationship. So I was really disillusioned, and I went to the acupuncture clinic, and... I saw acupuncture working and I fell in love with acupuncture. So I was, I was living two lives as a resident. I was going to the acupuncture clinic and seeing people getting better for the problems you know, that I talked about earlier. They couldn't poop and they were tired. And in the hospital, I was seeing people getting better with acute heart attacks and broken bones and acute appendicitis. 
And I, I saw it. It's so obvious that the Western medicine was wonderful at certain things and terrible at other things. And, and Chinese medicine seemed to help the problems that Western medicine couldn't and, and vice versa. So it was pretty obvious in 1984 when I started seeing these two medicines together that the, <clears throat> the future would be some aspect of a combination of the two. I'm so happy you said that because if you have been bitten by a, a snake and you right. have a broken arm... Uh, you know, the homeopathics might just not be the first line of approach for that. Exactly. I mean, that's why I call it good medicine. It's pretty obvious. If someone's having a heart attack or a burst appendix or acute pneumonia, you're going to use Western medicine. That's where it's really good at. But, you know, Western medicine is now taken over all of medicine, and it's only really effective for those 10 to 20% of acute crisis care problems. You ended up, over the course of, of looking at your clinical results and, and just being open-minded in an unusual way. I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by people who are open-minded 20 years before their peers. Uh, you know, you're, you're crazy when you first look at something, and 20 years later, oh, it's obvious. But it was obvious to you 20 years ago, and you're wondering, why are all these other people crazy? So I, I like watching yeah. that cycle, which seems to be getting faster. Like yep. New ideas uh, like light therapy uh, can come in much faster than they would have. It would have taken a generation before. But in my, my understanding of your work, you've got Western medicine, nutrition, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, herbal medicine, biofeedback, meditation, yoga, and you put all these together uh, in a way that's pretty unusual uh, for an MD uh, to do. And uh, walk me through your path of how you, how you, you, you talked about how you got Chinese medicine uh, and acupuncture in that clinic in the Bronx, but how'd you get into biofeedback and meditation and yoga? Right, so I started with acupuncture, and uh, acupuncture and Chinese medicine taught me a different way of thinking about the body. Um, and then I started. Uh, then I met Jeff Bland actually in the ah, late in the late eighties, yeah, and sort of took me down a, a more of a nutrition path. And for people listening, uh, Jeff Bland is considered the the father of functional medicine, and there's an episode with him on Bulletproof Radio as well. Yeah, and he's yeah. brilliant, brilliant guy. So I had a wonderful. Chinese medicine teachers, and I had Jeff Bland. And then I met a yoga teacher who's been really influential in my life. Uh, and he started getting me into yoga and meditation and, and learning how to relax the body. So it was this journey that I was just on that I, I wanted to learn as much as I can and learn anything that could help my patients because I saw the need for benign treatments that that many cultures have been using for centuries so you know in the 80s and the early 90s i went on this mission of trying to discover whatever i could that could possibly help patients what would you say to someone in medical school right now well <laughs> what i say to them is you know you're going to learn. I think if you really want to become a doctor and it may help your credibility, I think it has helped that I did go to medical school because you learn who's sick and who you can mess with. But that's all it's good for. You can you just know who who's really sick and then you refer them out. If that's what you want and you want the credibility of being an MD, go to medical school. But the type of medicine you're going to practice is probably not what you're going to learn at medical school. So I just tell them they need to be prepared for learning a lot of stuff, which is maybe important, maybe not, but more than likely that they're not going to use, you know, as if, if they really want to practice in a functional type of way. It's funny. My wife is a Karolinska-trained medical doctor, 
Uh, and she knows all kinds of stuff that I don't know and never will know and where to poke the body and what it should sound like and all the clinical stuff that's, that's frankly fascinating and complete mystery to me. Uh, and then there's this whole body of knowledge uh, that in our own quest for restoring her fertility and, and writing a book on fertility that, that we, we worked out around nutrition and mitochondria right. and all that stuff. But exactly. none of that's in medical school. Nothing. Do you, is it going to change? I mean, do you see medical school 10 years from now where they start saying, hey, here's how energy works. Here's how meditation is clinically correlated with a reduction in diabetes. Is that ever going to happen or is the system broken? I think this, well, I'm a little bit biased. I think the system is is broken. Uh, I have less faith in the system changing, to be quite honest. I think it changes very slowly. You know, I think functional medicine is starting, but there's still so much resistance. You know, it's almost like a cult becoming a doctor. You know what they do in cults? They deprive you of sleep. Um, <laughs> they, they bombard you with all this information. Uh, and then you, you, you don't question anything. You know, you have to have coffee to stay up all the time. But you don't, you, you're not taught to question things. And I think doctors, unfortunately, are, are, are not that open-minded. I'm hoping with the Michael Pollan book, I hope you've had him on your show. Uh, um, he, he's scheduled, yeah. With a new, psyched, you know, his book on psychedelics. I, I think it's an important book. I think it may change things when... When um, doctors can maybe do some drugs and open the way they think about things, that may change it a little bit more radically. But I think doctors are generally not that open-minded, or the system per se. It's kind of sad when there's a very high correlation of a physical condition with an emotional or, or physical trauma in the past. Uh, and you see lots of cases of uh, dysfunction in pelvic areas that are tied to early childhood things. Absolutely. But it, it isn't taught in medical school, and, and people, at least from the practitioners who I work with, people just don't get well until they, <laughs> they deal with the trauma that's in their mind and their, in their Absolutely. spirit. Uh, yep. But, man, how do you teach that when you're looking at someone's labs? It seems like the disconnect is, is there. But I'm pretty hopeful that people will just stop going to the doctor unless they're bleeding right now. Uh, and then they'll go to a new class of people, or doctors are going to come along. And I'm pretty hopeful that that medicine will shift in that direction because of market forces. But I'm also I'm only 45, so maybe I'm still naive in my young age. Well, <laughs> no, I think it is happening slowly. I think millennials tend to. I mean, my practice has become very millennial oriented. I mean, I just the younger generation get it. Um, my yeah. generation don't. I'm 63. They don't really get it. They still believe doctors know more than they actually know. They believe in the system. So I think it is changing. I just think it takes a long, long time. But but as you pointed out, it is happening more rapidly. You know, with every year. So maybe you're right. Hopefully you are. Now. I know from the amount of years you've been in practice that you had to be in your 60s. But if I looked at you, I'd say 50. Uh, so you're okay. you're doing something that works. Why do you look young? It's all those all, all those uh, supplements for mitochondria. <laughs> a low sugar diet. I love your bars, by the way. Thank oh. you for for <laughs> making those delicious bars. Except the coffee one, I want more of you. I can't get it. It's um, coming back. I promise. <laughs> good. So you know, I just try. You know, I've sort of practiced what I preach for the most part. I'm not perfect, which is great. I don't expect anyone to be perfect, but I meditate almost every day, 
probably that's one of the things I do daily. I try eat a low sugar diet, although I love sugar. That's why your bars have been such a win for me. Um, it's sort of my dessert often. My, when I have my cup of oh, okay. tea at the end of the day, I'll have a bar with a tea. It um, feels like a cookie, but it's not, right? Exactly. I don't know. Maybe it's good genes. Who knows? So meditation, uh, supplements for mitochondria, and not eating a lot of sugar are your primary. Uh, big things. Yeah, I exercise, but not as much as I should. I love riding my bike outside. I'm not a not particularly good indoor exercise. I like being outside in nature, um, but which I think is actually better in terms of exercise. Um, and... I, you know, I have a good support system. I have a wonderful wife. We've been married for 40 years, almost 39 years. Um, I love what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. So I've got a lot of the good, those good things going for me. I think having meaning in one's life and being passionate about what you do is a huge health benefit. It's like you've got the perfect laundry list of those things. Uh, that you figured out in your own life, and they're reflected in your books. Uh, my next book, uh, called Game Changers, is, is where I, I've analyzed the data from almost 500 interviews like this and said, right, what, what stands out? What does everyone do instead of what does that one billionaire do? What yeah. does that one successful person do? Um, and I think a lot of people now, especially when they're starting out in life, you know, you're in, you're in your 20s. You're saying, well, what do I do first? Uh, like, this is overwhelming. And, and I'm working on, on cracking that code because a lot of my work is, if someone had told me this when I was 20, do you know how much money I would have saved? Do you know how much <laughs> suffering and stress and arthritis and prediabetes and chronic fatigue and all that stuff? It was unnecessary. And it's because I didn't know where to start. And I had bad recommendations, including from my medical doctor who said, maybe you should try to lose weight. And couldn't tell me how, even though exercise six days a week didn't work. And, and so a lot of the, my motivation there is, and if I could help even five people not go through all the crap I went through, it would be an act of service. Um, but you've intuited these because you've got to see so many patients, I'm guessing, because you were exposed to many different uh, medical and healing modalities. You put them in your own life. And there's nothing like seeing a doctor who's 63 who looks like he's 50 to say, maybe I should listen to this guy. And likewise, if you go to a doctor who's... C completely gray and looks unhealthy. <laughs> maybe, right. maybe you shouldn't take health advice from that guy, but he could still fix your arm uh, exactly. if it's broken. Right? <laughs> and I didn't know that piece of advice, but if someone says they're doing functional medicine and they don't look well, you got to ask them, why don't you look well? And if they say, oh, I can tell you exactly why and I'm working on it, great. But if they don't look well and they don't know why, I say, I don't know, I just, you should do what I say, but I don't do it. Then like, okay, <laughs> maybe... Do you agree with that, that, that take on things? 100%. Yep. All right. Well, anyway, my compliments on your anti-aging program because it's working. Now, as an author, it takes a huge amount of, of energy and time to write a book. And I find I, I'm called to write a book only when I have something new to say and, and something that's worth people's time and, frankly, worth the thousands of hours it takes to create a really good book. Uh, you just came out with your fifth book. Uh, which means it's it's not a rehash of your other books. It's uh, it's different. What led you to decide that you wanted to write How to Be Well? Right. Well, I think for so many years, I was trying to understand Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. So I started as a doctor. I went into Chinese medicine. I learned about energy and qi and balance and the whole Chinese concept. And I kept on for many, many years trying to put those, try to understand what all these 
what this language was from a Western perspective. So what is energy, which is, I actually think mitochondrial function is, is energy. Um, what are the meridians, so the fascia, the meridians. So for years and years and years, I was trying to understand Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. And then, uh, you know, as I got more and more into meditation and, and I started realizing, why don't I take my Western knowledge and, and all the knowledge that I've learned over the years and actually put it into some type of Eastern perspective? Or, you know, and, and mandalas have been quite influential or, or, or Buddhism has been very influential in my life. If you, if you see my office and my home, there are Buddhas all over. I have mandalas all over. So I try to take the concept of mandala because I often, I used to, not so much anymore, but I used to meditate on a mandala. So I thought if I can take all this knowledge and, and overlay it on this concept of a mandala where people can meditate about their health and their life, um, that would be a great thing. So it was sort of an about or sort of a coming around to, to my roots in a way or, or, or re-envisioning the way I was first of all trying to understand eastern medicine now i thought i'd take that western concept and overlay it on sort of an eastern concept so it was sort of uh, a, a new way of thinking about a lot of the old ways of practicing medicine for our listeners you've probably heard of mandala but a lot of people sort of think it's a round picture but the original uh, buddhist mandalas and even some of the sand paintings from native americans were yeah. meant to meditate on. And you'd look at them for a long period of time, and then they start moving, and they kind of transport you places. And frankly, I thought that was mostly BS. Uh, and I went to Tibet, where I, I had yak butter tea that led to the, the creation of Bulletproof Coffee, and I bought um, a, a traditional mandala that was painted with local minerals. Uh, it's still hanging downstairs in Bulletproof Labs Alpha now. And when I, I spend a lot of time meditating or I come back from a week of, of doing the 40 Years of Zen uh, electrode thing, I sit and I look at that thing and it actually moves the way the Tibetan gurus told me that it would move. But if I don't spend a lot of time getting in those states, it just looks like a cool painting. But there's something about hacking the visual system. There's some kind of thing that we'll probably figure out over the next you know, 10 or so years with neuroscience what's really going on there. But there is something special about looking at a properly built mandala. But I got to ask you this since we're talking about it. How do you know if you've got a good one versus one that's just a pretty bunch of kaleidoscopes? <laughs> that's a, I haven't got a clue. I don't Darn know. It. <laughs> uh, it. It's a fascinating thing. And, and I would actually put mandalas in the field of biohacking. The idea of changing the environment around you uh, or inside of you so they have control of your biology. Looking at something that does something to your brain, whether it's a TV or a mandala... It is part of your environment, and it's something you can be conscious about. So I'm, I love it that you brought that up, and and that that's been a part of your your formation. So so you you went through all these things, and and you decided that you wanted to put together a new book that included that knowledge, not necessarily how to pick a good mandala, but sort of this idea. And you actually built a mandala for people to think about for their own wellness. What what's in it? Well, first of all, you, the patient or the reader, are in the middle. So. Yeah. Because to me, it's all about you taking control of your own health. And, you know, I, as a doctor, can guide you, can teach you stuff, but ultimately you know more about your body and more about your health than anybody else. So it's really trying to teach people to, to realize that they should become their own doctors and be at the, at the controls of their own health. 
So you, the, the reader, is in the middle. And then, you know, as in mandalas, there are four gates. Um, and, you know, I had to choose what were the four underlying, you know, what are the four underlying um, imbalances that people, are, that most people um, have or suffer with. And then I, I surround it with this, these six rings, which is how to eat, how to move, how to sleep, how to protect, because I think in this day and age with all the chemicals around, you need to learn to protect yourself from the environment um, or what's in the environment, um, how to relax or how to chill out, and then how to connect. So I went from the most material and how to eat to the least material, how to connect, which is just as important as how to eat, as we, you know. So that sort of was the structure. I had to cut... I came up with a structure, and then I, I would fit, I fit I would fit all the tips into that structure. When I write a book, I always find that part of the process of writing the book is that I learn something that I my, I think my subconscious was telling me that I needed to learn. Uh, and then when I'm done with the book, it sort of all comes together, and then I know something I didn't know. Did you learn something new when you wrote the book? Yes, I did. I realized that the small, ordinary actions we take on a daily basis or our habits that we perform daily have, you know, or I, I say the ordinary actions have extraordinary healing effects. So the little things that I took for granted that I think most people take for grant, granted, I think have really important health effects, you know, like walking in the forest, you know, or walking barefoot on the beach being kind to others, having gratitude, maybe having a dog or a cat, having a pet. Um, these little things, listening to music is a huge one for me as, and I think for a lot of people. These little things that, that, that happen to us daily, we don't really put them in, in the sphere of medicine or health, but I do believe that they have a huge effect on our health. So I think, although I sort of believe that on some level, I think with writing the book, I realized how important those daily actions we take are to our health. And don't take them for granted. It's not just about a low-sugar diet and, um, and, and going to the gym and sleeping well, which are all very important. But it's those other little things that, that people don't associate with, with health, which, have a huge you know, which are hugely beneficial. Part of my I'm going to live to at least 180 program is uh, is modifying my own habits so that I, I take less of the hits that, that you get from life, whether it's stress, right. environmental toxins, in, in a similar way of thinking to what you're talking about there. And the idea is if there are hits that didn't create any benefit for me, it's just a bad habit and it's not a functional habit. If I can replace it with something equally pleasurable or equally hard to do – but something that doesn't cause damage or better yet causes improvements, it actually isn't a cost to me to do that. It's just exactly. about knowing how to do it. Yep. Do you think people have the possibility to live longer or at a very minimum at least be healthier for longer by following the type of advice that you have on how to be well? Um, I won't say 100% sure, but 99% sure. Uh, I do believe that. I've seen it. I've seen just, you know, practicing this type of medicine for so long, seeing healthier, older people. There's no question we can stay healthy for long, you know, for longer and longer. And I think there was a new study out, not that I'm a big follower of studies, 
Um, I, I read recently about they reckon that people can live well into their hundreds now. So yeah, I do. I, I do believe it. I, and, and and as you you said, I think if you can change negative habits into positive habits, that makes a huge difference. You know, there's a this famous saying: neurons that fire together wire together. Um, so uh, so. I, I believe if you can make something into a habit and it's positive, it can only help you. So if someone uh, reads How to Be Well and they understand that the six keys uh, that you talk about in the book, they're, at least my understanding of things is that their health span, which is the amount of time that they're going to feel really good, uh, is going to be longer. And, and that's sort of the worst case scenario. And the best case scenario is, well, we know some people are living to 120. Maybe you could be one of those. And maybe there's a few hacks over the next 100 years exactly. <laughs> that might improve your ability to get beyond it. That's why I got to 180. I, I just took what we could do today and added 50% based on technology progression. I think I'm being conservative, but I don't want to scare people. Right? <laughs> right. No, no. I think you're right. I think I'm all about the health span. Um, but, you know, I love what you're doing and I love all this hacking, which is sort of a a new way of thinking for me. I, I love what's, I mean, I think it's really exciting what's going on. I mean, when, when I've been doing this for so long and it's only in the last 10 years that there's a real excitement about this. So it's great. Can I run what I learned writing Headstrong, my book about mitochondria past you and see if it passes your, the sniff test for you as a practicing physician who's also looked at other modalities? It, even after I, I published the book, it, it's still been gelling for me, but I'm to the point where my body's a Petri dish and it's almost entirely run by ancient microbes, uh, mostly mitochondria, right. and they talk a lot with the ones in my gut. And that they're kind of calling my second by second and, and a lot of the reactions in the world and that I'm maybe 5 or 10% of what it does because they'll listen to me a little bit, but really they're going to listen to a tiger outside or, or chronic toxins or whatever and, and just cut me out of the loop. So my job is to make a Petri dish where these things are happy and effective and they get enough stress, not too much stress. And so I'm kind of growing my body like you would grow a kombucha uh, or a yogurt or, or your sauerkraut or something. Because really, I'm just a collection of ancient bacteria, uh, all running dumb little bacterial programming to make sure that the Petri dish can get another meal. Is that too dark? Uh, no. Or is that kind of accurate? Yeah, I, I think it's accurate. I see the body as an ecosystem. Um, and yeah, I think that's a pretty, I think, fairly or pretty or fairly accurate way of, of seeing the body. I mean, I see everything as an ecosystem now. Yeah. You know, our bodies, our relationships with other people, the culture in general. So, and that's sort of a concept that was ingrained in me from my Chinese medicine teachers and Ephraim Korngold and Harriet Barnfeld in, in, in San Francisco. They ingrain this concept of ecosystems and everything's about an ecosystem and it's your inner ecosystem working with the outer ecosystem and the ecosystem of the family, of, 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 of the culture in general. So yes, I do believe that's sort of the microscopic ecosystem you, you're talking about, yes. I woke up this morning uh, thinking about biological computation and how I like to think bacteria are pretty dumb, and on a one by one, on, on a single bacterial basis, 
they pretty much run a simple, you know, run away from scary things, eat everything and make sure you reproduce before you die. And that's really, it. and then, oh, and help other bacteria if you get those first three done, you form biofilms and all. Right. And, and that's kind of the human condition is, is we spend a lot of time on those three things. Um, but I was looking at the wisdom of mother nature and, and it turns out when you have unfathomably large numbers of bacteria and all, what you end up with is a really good uh, uh, biological computational engine where mother nature doesn't really care if a few people die at all, as long as some people get much better than others over time. And this goes for all species. I'm just humanizing right. it. Uh, where if you have a big enough ecosystem view, all of a sudden you realize that there's an incredible elegance that comes from, well, a lot of suffering when people don't do things right, but the people who do things right or have the right genes and the right ecosystem and all that they tend to evolve and and that what that means is that it's it's solving the hardest problem of all mathematically but it's just doing it through well that one failed that one failed that one failed so if you have a broad enough view it's really elegant but if you're one of the ones who's about to fail it kind of sucks and we can maybe change that um i have no idea if there's a question for you in there but but when well, you're talking about ecosystems you made me think about that so i thought i'd share it yeah well i think and what's scary now is is the government is screwing up climate change and what we're doing to the environment is yeah. making it so much harder for all of us. You know, people don't realize, you know, the negative effects on your own personal health from, you know, the EPA screwing around with, you know, just trying to make more money for for corporations. That's a big problem that I think we, we really need to, you know, become aware of and and you know start mounting some resistance because you know what we're doing to the planet is affecting us you know we are microsystems of of the macrosystem or microcosms of the macrocosm and what affects the macrocosm is absolutely going to affect us what are the two man-made toxins that you're most concerned about sure two <laughs> uh, or three <laughs> uh well the one that I'm concerned about because no one really talks about it is glyphosate. Yes, I think me that's, too. That's not enough. Uh, you know, even when you're seeing studies on on chemicals, they're sort of leaving glyphosate out, and I think glyphosate is is a huge problem. Uh, I know you, you you've talked a lot about mold. I mean, I I think mold is a tricky one. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if uh, I'm not sure what the two or three are. Um, you would put mold above mercury. I was guessing no, no, you'd no, say no, mercury. no. No, okay. I just said mold because I, oh, I think okay. of you as mold because we actually, when we see patients, we recommend the movie you made on mold. Oh, yeah, it's just one <laughs> of the things <laughs> we recommend. I mean, I think mercury is probably yeah. You're probably right. You know, I just saw someone today just from eating. I mean, I see a lot of people actually who eat too much fish and their mercury levels go up so i would say mercury is probably up there you know i think there's so many we have thousands and thousands and i think the problem is more the number of toxins that we're exposed to and it's just overloading our system rather than one or two particular ones you know i always mention glyphosate because that's the one that's sort of ignored or not really spoken yeah. about or or i think monsanto's done a really good job of of, of you know saying it's safe or making us all believe that it's safe it's funny a while ago uh, i think it was philip morris changed the name to something no one can actually pronounce when they see it including me so i don't remember who it is and now monsanto uh, um, yep yeah, no more monsanto's, monsanto. 
Yep. Yeah, they changed the name. Everyone hates Monsanto, so we'll yep. just change the name. So now they're yep. a part of Bayer, yeah, exactly. uh, which is yep. part of AG Farben, which is a company with some history that isn't really positive. Right. Uh, so basically, if you if you make glyphosate, uh, guys like Frank and me and millions of others are going to know who you are, and who knows, it might end up in your own water. So stop making it already. Anyway. <laughs> now, I've had a couple of guests on, talk uh, like Zach Bush, uh, and I think uh, Jeff Smith a long time ago did a documentary on GMOs and glyphosate. What's your biggest concern about glyphosate and how it's affecting your patients? Well, one of the concerns is that no one talks enough about it. You know, it's a registered antibiotic. My biggest concern clinically that I'm seeing is it's screwing up people's microbiomes. And we are now, you know, I, I'm always thinking about this. We are seeing more and more people with, uh, you, you may have had someone on talking about it, with mast cell activation. I don't know if you... Yeah. Uh, we're seeing more and more of these hyperactive mast cells and clinical problems from that. And I know... Um, but by the way, that includes uh, postural orthostatic hypotension, which is something that's come up twice in recent interviews, including with Nick Foles, the MVP Super Bowl champion. His wife, Tori, is dealing with it, and it's tied to mast cell activation. And you're saying that's tied to glyphosate? Well, I, I always, I mean, I just think that glyphosate is screwing up our microbiome so mm. much, amongst other things, that it can trigger, you know, when you think of a macrophage, that's your primary sort of inflammatory or, or immune system cell. So anything can affect it, and once you release you know, the, the, the contents of the, of the mast cell are released, all sorts of different things can happen. So I, I am a big believer in these little things like glyphosate um, and what it's doing to the microbiome are, you know, are causing all these problems downstream. So I can't say directly glyphosate is, is an issue, but why are we having so many of these problems today that we didn't have 20 years ago? So that's why I think... Um, glyphosate could be a problem okay. there because I'm not, you know, 20 years ago I was not seeing the amount of autoimmune problems, mast cell problems that I'm seeing today. So something we're doing to ourselves, something we're eating, something that's going on in the environment is causing this. So I, I just, you know, intuitively believe that glyphosate is possibly one of those factors and, and probably one of those factors. Uh, well, thank you for calling it out. Uh, I, I would agree with you there. And in fact, I'm talking about number four. You, you've got six keys in your mandala and in your book. Uh, and the fourth one is protect. And so for these things, you're saying expose yourself to less of them uh, for the most part. Is there anything else we should be doing to protect ourselves from the toxins, both Mother Nature's toxins as well as the ones that we make ourselves, uh, besides eat less of them or breathe less of them? Yeah, uh, so... I put, for instance, get some sun, which is health. You know, so for the most part, it's decreasing the amount of toxins that you're putting into your body. But the second part, which is is probably just as important, is is how do you improve how you break these these uh, chemicals down? So that may mean you know eating certain foods. That may mean taking certain supplements. But the most important part of Protect is just being aware of all these chemicals out there and, and, and trying to decrease your exposure to them. But I do believe, I do believe that um, the way you eat, the way you um, <clears throat> are in nature, like, here's a perfect example. 
going for a walk barefoot on the beach or in nature, the whole concept of earthing, which I think is, you know, I'm not, you know, the, 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 the research may or may not be there, but I do believe that the more contact you have with, with, with nature, that's going to affect the way you process these chemicals. So, you know, once again, it's all these little things that you do on a daily basis that are still going to affect the way you um, process these chemicals as opposed to specific things that you can do. I think the supplements you talk about, you know, improving mitochondrial function indirectly will improve that as well. I love it that you're talking about sunshine and earthing as ways to protect because a lot of people look at the sun as a form of assault and ultraviolet rays are dangerous. How much sunshine should people get on a daily basis without sunscreen? Well, at least half an hour. Look, my, my skin is damaged from growing up in South Africa and having too much sun. I, I acknowledge that. But, you know, to be scared of the sun, you know, we've for centuries and centuries, for eons, we've lived under the sun. It's crazy to think that sun is a problem. Obviously, too much sun and you've just got to be smart about it. But I think at least half an hour in the sun without sunscreen a day is, is vital for health. I mean, most people know how much better they feel when they're in the sun, but they don't realize the benefits they're actually getting from it, way and above just feeling good. A lot of people don't know that that kind of exposure to sunlight increases the thickness of the collagen in your skin, and it reduces your incidence of nearsightedness, uh, which is why we both talk about that uh, in our work. And my skin is looking really young right now, despite the fact that I go out without sunscreen on a regular basis, but I don't spend eight hours a day in the sun exactly. without a hat or a shirt or something, uh, because, well, that would be dumb. <laughs> so it's, exactly. it's like, just because exactly. too much is bad doesn't mean zero is good. And I think we're just bad as human calculators at recognizing there's an effective dose and too little is just as much as it's just as bad as too much. And I think that's a good point. There's such, there's such an either-or culture. You know, sun is either good or bad. It's just the nuance of, of all these aspects of health are, are ignored. Now, in your book, uh, you talk, in addition to protect, you talk about these other, or these other five pillars, a total of six. And the first one, and one where I would agree with you, is eat. <laughs> you say, you got to do that right. Give me the, the three-sentence version of how you recommend people ought to eat in your book. Well, I think eat as close to nature as possible, but what's happened over time, I think more and more people have become carbohydrate intolerant. So foods that we thought were healthy for most people, for many people, are not as healthy as we thought. So this whole concept of whole grains being healthy, I think, is probably nonsense. I mean, I, <laughs> Yay. just say it like it is. Um, now, some people do well on a vegan diet, and, but for the most part, most people I see clinically do much better on a, a paleo or a low-carbohydrate type of diet, basically eating protein and vegetables. And, and obviously, it's a source of the protein. So I'm not endorsing factory farm meat, but I'm endorsing grass-fed, grass-finished meat, organic chicken. So try to get food from your farmer. So, you know, lo try eat locally. Try eat food that hasn't been altered. Um, the less altered the food, the better it's going to be for you. Uh, are you concerned about people on paleo or otherwise just getting too much animal protein? I'm, I've been seeing effects from that in people. Well, yeah, I think you've got to be smart about it. I don't think there's one way for everyone. You know, I, I take myself and my wife as an example. I do much better when I eat very, very low carb. 
Um, yeah. and, and I love, believe me, I love potatoes and I love my sugar. I love all the shit that I shouldn't be eating. <laughs> I can't say I don't love it. Whereas my wife actually does better eating more carbs than I do. So I, I do well eating a lot of fat and a lot of protein. In fact, I became pre-diabetic about 10, day, 10 years ago. I was, you know, growing up in South Africa, I was eating lots, you know, you eat lots of fruit. I was brainwashed like everyone else that I shouldn't be eating meat because my father died of a heart attack when he was 54. My brother had a heart attack when he was 50. So I had been programmed to think that, you know, fat clogs the arteries. So I was eating lots of whole grains, and fish, and I thought I was eating this healthy diet. And I became pre-diabetic. And it's only... <laughs> Only when I realized that and I started eating lots of fat again, saturated fat, and um, I you know, lost weight without even trying to lose weight, and I, I felt fantastic. Whereas my wife needs to eat more carbs. I think everyone's a little bit different. I don't think there's one right diet for everyone. Yeah. But I do think the majority of people in this day and age, especially as you get older, do better on, on a lower carbohydrate diet. Uh, you're totally right there. Uh I've also seen a lower percentage of women who do well over time on very low carb diets. They do great yeah. if they cycle in and out, but yes. it seem, it seems like moderate carbs, but that doesn't mean whole grains and sugar is the carbs. It exactly. means eating safe carbs, uh, more starches and things yeah. that metabolize slowly, uh, that it seems to support healthier hormones. Exactly. And even on guys cycling in and out, so occasionally have some carbs, not cheesecake and Twinkies, but some carbs, and then going back in ketosis, uh, it seems to produce the best long-term results. Yes. Yeah, and I see that clinically too. There's no question. Okay. That's what we do with the, you know, we put people on a ketogenic diet or even on a low-carb. Yeah, so we tend to cycle people. Most people, some people are fine, but we tend to cycle them in and out. Absolutely. And people generally do better like that. I was also pre-diabetic. Fasting blood sugar was 117 in my 20s. And I had a recent... Uh, glucose or insulin sensitivity test and I was one on a scale of one to 160 so I'm perfectly yeah. insulin sensitive and my glucose tolerance was high because I can process carbs I just don't do it that often I do it yeah. often enough that that mechanism in my cells is ready to do it and I primarily have fat and vegetables and grass-fed proteins and all and but when I did only fat and, and protein for a while. I actually got food allergies and, and some autoimmune right. things I didn't have before. I think it was probably gut bacteria. And, and yes. so I, I, I feel bad that there's you know, a couple hundred thousand people listening to this right now going, good God, what do I do right now? And, and the answer is, just like you said, it's eat more food <laughs> from your farmer, get lots of vegetables and play with the rest until you feel good. I mean, what, that's kind of what I tell people who aren't going to read all the books and do all the hard work. Do you endorse that as a first step, or is there a better first step? No, that's perfect. It's exactly what I endorse. And in my book, it's all about learning about yourself because there is no one right way. I mean, they're basic concepts, you know, as little sugar as possible, you know, avoiding factory farm meats, um, avoiding the vegetable oils. Uh, they're basic concept, but for the most part, it's really learning how you function in the world and how you tolerate foods because... Also, everyone's microbiome is different. I mean, now that we're seeing people with this mast cell stuff, some people do well on a low histamine diet, but those tend to be sort of um, temporary problems. And once you correct the microbiome, once you correct the underlying parasite or limes or whatever it is, they become less mast cell reactive. So you've got to learn about yourself. You're ultimately, you've got to become your own doctor. Well said. I... I went through this period last week 
I added some amino acids back into my stack of 150 or so supplements a day I take. Uh, and these were some older amino acids that were in the back of my cabinet. Oh, I should take those. And I'm on a fishing trip in Alaska, and I start getting hives. I haven't had hives in 10 years. These just plague me. Hives are a sign of mast cell uh, yeah. overactivation. And I'm like, what is going on here? And I, I've, I actually took a Benadryl, which I haven't had in so long. So what is up with this? And I thought about it. I said, what did I change recently? And I, I pulled them out of my rotation, and they went away within two or three days. But I went through a two-year period where I had hives every single day, and it was torture. And there's, uh, I have tens of thousands of people listening to this right now who deal with that same thing and don't understand it's your gut bacteria. Yeah. And maybe they're wrong, or maybe what you're feeding them is wrong. Exactly. And, and so anyone who has stuff like that going on, it's your fault. It's something you're doing. You just don't know what it is. And, and it's, it's up to you. And a functional medicine doctor can guide you. But end of the day, you're going to have to notice, I'm itchy today, I wasn't itchy yesterday, and become your own event correlation engine. Uh, exactly. I'm, I'm fortunate I figured that out because I, I, was, I was sort of going down that, what if this continues for a year? <laughs> like, how much would that suck? Uh, fortunately, it was only a one-week problem, but it was not a, not a fun one week. All right, let's talk about number two on your list. You talk about sleep, and you and I are both huge fans of sleep. How much sleep do people need? Well, I think that's also personal. I mean, I would say anywhere from seven to maybe even nine hours. I mean, I do have, you know, I actually function on six and a half to seven, but I probably need more. Um, but I, I, I would use a lower number at seven. But some people need up to nine hours of sleep. I don't think, um, you know, a lot of people think they can get away with just five hours of sleep. I'm not sure. I think it'll catch up to them. So I would say a minimum of probably six and a half and probably seven hours of sleep. I went for two years with an absolute cap of five hours of sleep and quite often about four hours of sleep. And I found I could actually function really well if I did my diet right, everything right. And it wasn't meant to be, it was going to be a 30-day experiment to show I was putting myself at risk of gaining weight. But I kept losing weight and feeling good, and I managed to start a company while working as a VP in the tech world. So it, it was... It was a good thing to do from a short-term perspective. Uh, being a little older and wiser, I don't endorse that for long periods of time, but I know yeah. it's possible. And I also know my telomeres may have paid for it. And I'm, uh, you know, I may have lost 10 years at the yep. end of my life, but I don't know. But that's okay. I'll reverse that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that because okay. I'm in my mid-40s. When I'm 100, you'll have to see if I'm right. All right. Next up, movement is your number three on your list of six keys. What kind of movement? Because there's so much movement. Everyone on on the web says, you know, do this, do that. What What's your take on movement? Well, I think they're all different aspects of movement. Uh, you know, from you know the classic aerobic and and, and weight resi resistance training or weight training and uh, core. But the one part of movement that I think people ignore is the whole fascial system, because what I see a lot clinically and and the fascia, I didn't. You know, learning about the fascia, I didn't really learn about it in functional medicine. I didn't learn about it in Western medicine. I didn't really even learn about it in Chinese medicine. The concept of fascia I sort of got from yoga. Um, but the idea that these, the soft tissue sort of tightens around not only your organs but muscles and, and you develop scar tissue and thickening and it squeezes vessels, it squeezes lymphatics, it squeezes nerves. So I think... The idea for me of movement is not only moving and doing your resistance training um, and stretching, but releasing that tight fascia. I think that's really important because I see a lot of, 
you know, someone will have um, tight hips and the problem they'll present with won't be with the hip problem, they'll present with back problems or a knee problem or something. So I think keeping your fascia loose and what, why I'm sort of um, talking about this is because everyone else knows about, you know, keeping your strong core and doing interval training and yada, yada, yada. But p- please don't forget about the fascia and keeping it loose. So foam roller is something really important to have and um, going for body work if you can. Um, but keeping that fascia limber and, and letting your, your, your muscles and your joints move freely is really important for, for, um, in, in terms of movement. I like to take a foam roller and put it on the bulletproof vibe, the whole body vibration plate we make. Yeah. So I'm I'm rolling, and 30 times a second, it, it's massaging and uh, or using uh, one of the, there's actually vibrating foam rollers now. Yes, I have I have all of that stuff. I love it. Yeah, uh, and, and it's it's kind of funny when people are saying you do what you know you're a CEO and, and you're a total dork anyway. Uh, but really, but yeah, really, it, it makes a difference, and you feel good all day, and it's five minutes of doing crazy stuff. It, it seems worth it. Uh, and it sounds like you're in that same camp. Big time. And, you know, uh, I, I think the whole idea of the meridians running through the fascia is sort of or not universally accepted, but fairly well accepted. So even from a Chinese medicine perspective and energy, you need to release the fascial planes to, to let energy move freely. And I would say there's there's really good evidence that fascia carries electrons at, yeah. at this point. Oh, there is, yeah. Yep, and it and it it's how your body stores hydration. So if you have good collagen in your fascia, which is what it's made out of, you can carry a current better. And it appears from the world of acupuncture that there's information or there's something going through there because we can modify it with needles and we can measure changes in resistance where the meridians are. So it, it exactly. seems like keeping that hydrated and functioning well is in our best interest because it's there for a reason. Uh, and there's other people who will say a lot this and that and lots of other things, a lot of which I believe. But at a minimum, I think that that passes all of the scientific muster that I would want it to. Are you, are you there from that perspective or is there even more 100%. that you're sure of? No, 100%. 100% there, yeah. Okay. I just see it's just one of the, why, why I stress it is one of those areas not really stressed by even the, the, the holistic doctors or the functional medicine doctors. It's that one area that they've forgotten about, the whole fascial system. And it's not something I learned even at acupuncture school. I didn't learn it at medical school. I didn't learn it at acupuncture school. I actually learned it in, from a yoga teacher, who, an Iyengar an, an yoga teacher who, re, who then turned me on and then an, an acupuncturist, Mark Seam. But it's interesting. It's not sort of taught in the traditional schools for some unknown reason. A recent study came out that blew me away. It was some physicians who had figured out a technique of microscopy to look at tissues in the body while they were still attached to the body. And they looked at the fascial planes and they found that when they weren't dead, that there were actually channels inside uh, your, your fascia that carry fluid that are completely invisible when you take the collagen out and you look at it all flattened out on a microscope. And they found there was a pulsation through there. So apparently there's this whole system in our fascia that no one ever noticed until now, except for maybe yogis or, or massage therapists right. or something, because they could look at the effects of it. But there's stuff going on in there that, that I don't think anybody knows enough about. I agree 100%. And, you know, when you think of it, the fascia, you connect it from head to toe with your fascia. I mean, why would you have this sophisticated system 
in your body if it wasn't you know providing some type of function it's it's sort of this with this arrogant especially western way of looking at stuff you know we don't know what the appendix does so just take it out if it's not working or the tonsils and the fascia is just one of it's an organ system and it's an and it, unfortunately an an ignored organ system well that is changing i think pretty rapidly yep all right, so we've covered your first four in your book, Eat, Sleep, Move, and Protect, and you've got two more that are probably the hardest ones. Uh, the next one is Unwind. What's your definition of unwinding, and how the heck is someone listening to this show supposed to do it? Well, as I've gotten older, um, you know, when I was young, I would exercise, and I got into yoga, uh, and I tried meditation. I could never really meditate, and and. It's only recently that I have a regular meditation practice and I see how important it is to really slow down and, and activate this, the parasympathetic system. Or slow, you know, Most of us are, are, are too yang. Um, we're running around, our mind's overactive, we just don't know how to slow down. And it's only when I realized or started meditating regularly and it became a habit it's all very well to meditate once a week or go to yoga once or twice a week. But once you start actually learning to control your mind and learning to calm down your nervous system, um, it makes a huge difference to your health. And that's what I really mean by unwinding, by, by basically relaxing or slowing down your nervous system. Because most of us don't have a nervous system that tends to slow down or relax. So to me, unwinding is is for the most part, um, relaxing the nervous system. Uh, so meditation is the primary way that you do that. Uh, well, there are other ways for people, because people struggle with meditation, yeah. but you can learn to knit. It's, it's focused concentration. You know, I spent years trying to do mindfulness, and then I did a, you know, we had a meditation teacher come to my office, and he gave us mantras he taught us the Vedic meditation which I always thought was oh, I don't want to learn TM I don't want to what about mantras just didn't made no sense and I realized how they just made it really simple it's just a simple way of learning to control your mind so it's whatever way you do if it it just needs to become a habit I I read a book maybe 15 years ago by a surgeon I want to think I think he was Johns Hopkins but it might have been Harvard or somewhere and he was a Western guy, and, and he'd renamed himself to Dharma Singh Khalsa, and the book was called Meditation is Medicine. And this guy was a straight-up, you know, double-board certified, yeah. super strong physician saying, here's the mantra and the finger pose, the mudra, for this medical condition in, in this whole book. So I, for two years, I'd wake up. I'd said I'd be a morning person, which I, I'm not genetically. So if I woke up at 5 a.m. every morning for two years, and I spent an hour doing mantra-based meditation and drinking my tea, I'd have my coffee afterwards, and you know, different finger poses, and, and sitting in the living room going um ah uh, mush, you know, all this crazy. You know what? There's something interesting and useful that goes on from that. I don't do that on a regular basis now, but for people listening, you got to try stuff. And if making weird sounds that don't make any sense to you rationally. If it works, it doesn't matter. It's exactly. not a rational thing. You're using vibrations in your body that listens, even if your brain thinks you're a total buffoon for doing it. it doesn't mean it doesn't work. Exactly. And- it's just try, <laughs> try it and see what works for you. I think yeah. I, I, I think finding some type of meditation practice, I believe, is essential for staying healthy, especially in this day and age, and especially as we get older. Uh, very, very well said. So that's your unwind, and your sixth one is one that I'm. I found 
struck me when I started Bulletproof. It, it was a very small blog when I started it. And when I started the first uh, Bulletproof conference uh, going back uh, five years ago, and by the way, our next one is going to be March 28th. Um, and we've re- reached about 3,000 people now. So this, this strong community around the world of biohacking uh, coalesced around this work. And it's really profoundly affected, I think, how much I age. And I, I really genuinely enjoy that. And for me, that's a big sense of my belonging and meaning and connection. Yeah. Um, but that's an odd way to do it. When you talk about connecting in your book, how would someone who isn't going to go you know, start biohacking or something, how does one go about, as you put it, awakening and enhancing that sense of belonging and meaning in their life? Uh, like, what, what are the... the, what are the the, the quick and easy ways to do that. Sure. So, so when I talk about connect, it's first of all connecting to yourself. So we talk okay. about the meditation. Then it's connecting to to your surroundings, to your family, to to your community, finding your tribe. I mean, you know, in this day and age, the the millennials talk about a tribe or finding your tribe. And there, there are many ways you can find your tribe. You know, whether it's a local yoga studio, your church, whatever it is. I think finding people that you feel comfortable around that that believe the same things as you. You, f- you can talk about um, concepts that interest you. Uh, I think that's really important, having that support system, knowing that when you're down and out, they're going to support you. Um, you know, that's why a lot of these communities, um, cultures, uh, blues, blue zones. Blue zones, right, I mean, yeah. They're, they're all strong communities. I mean, so I think there's a huge aspect of, 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 of community to health. So finding your tribe, and it doesn't have to be a religious tribe, it can be any type of tribe. And then, as we were talking about earlier, connecting the environment is really, really important. Realizing that Mother Earth is part of, you know, is, is going to affect your, your health. And, I, and I'm a big believer, and maybe also coming from South Africa and knowing that the system is rotten and you've got to get together to fight the system. So joining... Um, organizations that are meaningful to you you meet people that way so you're learning to try help the environment you you're working and 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 meeting people that have the same belief systems as you all important and it and and having meaning in your life helps your health as well so finding some organization that helps uh, the environment you'll meet people that's connecting to you local people around you and it'll help you because you'll feel good about yourself when there's passion and meaning in your life so i'm all for finding organizations like that and becoming part of them i've got a nuanced question for you in there you talk about fighting the system but if you're fighting a system you're you're kind of triggering your fight or flight response right okay so that's the wrong word thank you not fight fighting the system but you know you want to try change the system and okay. uh, yeah, maybe fighting is the wrong word. Thank you. I, I wasn't looking to, to criticize your language at yeah. all, but but more for people listening, there's a, a group of, of people who get really passionate about fighting and pushing against something, and that seems to make it stronger, um, whether it's you know glyphosate or politics or whatever. The, the the lower stress version of that is just break it. But you don't have to fight against something to break it. Like, like breaking stupid things is incredibly fun. You can right. build a community around that. But you don't have to fight them in order to right. break them. <laughs> right? fair, fair enough. Okay. Uh, good deal. I, I found that when I got really involved in you know fighting against something that I was having yeah. less of an impact on it than if I just said, well, yeah, it exists, but 
man, it's going to be really fun to watch it fall down. <laughs> yeah, for, for me, it was Good kind point. of a, a, a spiritual progression. Uh, so I'm hoping for, for people listening, like how much energy are you putting into uh, becoming more? And, you know, no, super personal I'll, development question, but good, good point. Okay. I like that. Uh, uh, thanks for, uh, uh, thanks for uh, listening to that. I've got one more question for you, uh-huh. Dr. Li- Dr. Littman. If someone came to you tomorrow and they said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being. So not just a sport or job, but just, just at life three most important pieces of advice, not six that are in your book, but only three. Right. What are the three most important pieces of advice you have for someone who wants to do better at everything? Uh, learn to meditate. Okay. Um, make sure you're sleeping appropriately. Get a good amount of sleep and find meaning in your life. I'd put all of those probably before eating even. Um, passion and meaning in your life. Um, Learn to control your monkey mind or or meditate. I think meditation goes way beyond just controlling your mind. And sleep. Don't take sleep for granted. I've got one more bonus question for you. Normally I end on that question. Okay. But you wrote another book uh, that uh, was called 10 Reasons You Feel Old and Get Fat, which is a fantastic title. Uh, give me the three biggest reasons you think I'm going to get old so I can hack them. What are they? Well, stress and cortisol and, and okay. what stress does. Um, your microbiome, uh, what's going on in your microbiome. You know, loneliness or the lack of connection, I think, is huge. I mean, you know, or sleep as well. I mean, but, you know, these these. Oh, there's little things that we sort of, you know, as I said right in the beginning, we take for granted. I mean, not being connected to other human beings is is a huge factor for aging. So lack of connection. There's a South African concept called Ubuntu. Ubuntu means what makes us human is the humanity we show each other. So a lack of Ubuntu in your life, um, which is sort of connection, but maybe a little bit more... Um, a, a microbiome that's completely out of whack and, and, and an inability to deal with the stress in your life. Very cool. Well, I think we covered those in your, uh, in your overall six points. Right. But since I am actively working on being young beyond what Mother Nature wanted me to, I, uh, I appreciate that extra emphasis on those things. Now, your new book is called How to Be Well. And people can find that anywhere that they like to buy books. And the website for that is bewell.com, where they can find out more about your stuff. Uh, do you do more on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook? Like, where can people follow your yeah, daily musings? I, I mean, my musings are on Facebook and Twitter. I have someone else on my team do my Instagram or the Be Well Instagram. I have my own personal Facebook and Twitter where I have my personal musings. And then the website we have, I, I write, I put out a we put out a couple of blogs on the website, but I write at least one a week myself. Um, so just go to bewell.com and it's free newsletter. Excellent. And, and if you enjoy the show, uh, you like you like new thoughts and new ideas, and you probably need to watch out for confirmation bias, where you only listen to people who agree with you, which is a path to not making good decisions. Yeah. And I, I do my best to bring people on the show who don't always agree with me. 
Um, and I also like to bring people on the show who've done something new and unusual before everyone else. Uh, and Dr. Littman has, has done that. And I think you'll find if you look at his work and you look at his website, uh, that you'll find that there's new and interesting stuff uh, that's in alignment with what you're paying attention to because you take your time to listen to the show. So it's definitely worth your time. Um, he's, uh, he's a luminary, luminary in his field and has done quite a lot of good for quite a lot of people. Uh, Dr. Littman, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Dave. And thank you for all the work you do. And let me know when those coffee bars are available. (laughs) (laughs) Bulletproof Coffee Collagen Bars are coming back for people listening. I don't have a date for you yet, but they were a limited edition. Uh, We we weren't sure anyone was going to go for a coffee flavor, but they became my favorite flavor. I have six of them left in my personal stash, (laughs) and I hoard them. Uh, But they are coming back at some point. (laughs) 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 Thanks again. Thanks, Dave. Okay. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.